In the summer of 1973, sudden tragedy befell workers heading across a calm Kaohsiung harbor, crossing to the export processing zone. 25 ferry passengers died, all young unmarried women. Their remains were interred in a cemetery called the 25 Maiden Ladies' Tomb. But their story was far from finished. This small graveyard gave rise to ghoulish accounts of the supernatural, tales of young male passers-by encountering female ghosts in search of a husband. And in the coming years, there would be surprises, twists and turns, including the remains of the deceased being twice relocated. The Taiwan History Podcast, Formosa Files, is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Frank C. Chen Foundation. Formosa Files. September 3rd, 1973. It's early in the morning on a Thursday, and we're in the southern Taiwan city of Kaohsiung. More specifically, we're on Qijing Island. What used to be a peninsula separating Kaohsiung Harbor and the open sea, but a harbor entrance, the second in Kaohsiung, was cut through the peninsula in 1967, turning it into an island. As a result, commuters heading to work in Kaohsiung from Qijing needed to use ferries to cross the narrow harbor. In 1973, these ferries were small, privately operated, mostly primitive affairs, um, sampans, or what you might call small barges. Back and forth, the small ferries went, cramming as many passengers in as possible for what is a very short ride. Today, visitors will likely take the ferry at the northern end of the island. It's a six-minute crossing, unless you get stuck with a you know, ship crossing you and then you have to wait, but it's short, mostly. But today's story is from Zhongzhou Village, further down the island. It's an even narrower crossing, really just a couple hundred meters. The morning of September 3rd, 1973, the waters are calm and workers are boarding a sampan ferry at the pier at Zhongzhou Village. And it's overcrowded as usual. The ferry quickly fills up and off it sets, heading toward the Kaohsiung export processing zone on the other side. The ferry was perhaps about eight meters in length, had an official maximum capacity of 13 passengers. And uh, there was a small single cabin area, a short cabin. We wouldn't have been able to stand up in it. All in all, the ferry was loaded with 71 passengers, most of them on the deck outside the cabin. And there was a captain, but no other crew members. Wow. Uh, 13, legally, 71. Yeah. So... At first, everything seemed normal, but very soon, the, the ferry captain discovered that his boat had a leak and was taking on water. And as we noted, thankfully, it's a short crossing, so he tries to speed up, but the boat is heavy and sluggish and starts rocking. The passengers are spooked. The boat reaches the pier. The captain tells the passengers to evacuate the boat. So, so far, so good. But the resulting rush of moving weight back and forth as people got off would prove disastrous. The passengers on the front of the deck could get off quickly, but those at the center in a cabin and at the back had to struggle through and over cargo and bikes. With the sudden movement of weight on this leaking crowded boat, it listed dangerously and then capsized. And this happened so fast that there was almost no chance for those trapped inside the cabin to get out. So they're shoreside, they're not in the open ocean, and they're villagers from a fishing village. But not everyone could swim, 
Uh, we've talked about this before, John, about uh, swimming in Taiwan mm-hmm. not really being uh, such a big thing for a variety of reasons, some cultural, some, you know, for the fact that we don't have a lot of swimming pools in some areas. But anyway, a lot of people can't swim. But there were bystanders near the pier who jumped in to rescue the passengers in the water and emergency services were called. But it all happened too quickly. The boat had sunk in deep water in just a few minutes. Those in the cabin perished. 46 passengers had been saved. 25, however, all 25 were unmarried young women. They perished. They were between the ages of 13 and 30. You said 13 and 30? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. The captain didn't go down with the ship. Maybe that captain should be in quotes as he did not have a license. And there were no life jackets or life-saving equipment on the ferry. Having said that, the boat had recently passed a safety inspection. So the Kaohsiung Port Authority and city government, uh, they're not exactly covering themselves in glory here. Hmm. And 25 people were dead. 25 women and girls. The youngest, 13. Listeners will be assuming that she and other teenagers were going to school, but no, they were headed to work. Things were very different half a century ago in Taiwan. The 1960s and 1970s saw Taiwan move from a farming society to a manufacturing one, and girls had always been useful for families with household chores and farming work, but now with manufacturing, they could bring in much-needed money for families by working in these factories. Yes, young women doing factory work, it was something relatively new, especially new for farming families from the countryside. You might have thought there would have been concerns about this uh, modern big city employment being proper for girls. But in fact, female employment in manufacturing was quickly accepted. It was seen as an expression of daughters being filial, uh, working to help their families. Mm, that famous Chinese character, right? Xiao, Zhong Xiao, Xiao. Mm-hmm. In the case of the young women from Qijing, they worked at the Kaohsiung Economic Processing Zone, or EPZ, which was established in December of 1966 in the Qianzhen district. That's very close to the southern part of Qijing Island. And this EPZ was designed to attract direct foreign investment in labor-intensive light industries. This happened, so 1966, this happened during the time when Frank C. Chen was mayor of Kaohsiung. And of course, uh, longtime listeners will know that the Frank C. Chen Foundation, they are the sponsors of this podcast. Mm -hmm. The Kaohsiung EPZ is often described as the first of its kind in the world. It was one of the very first, if we include special economic zones or free trade zones, but not the very first. But yeah, it was certainly influential and copied elsewhere in Asia. The Kaohsiung EPZ attracted Japanese companies, the likes of Hitachi and Canon. There were American companies and the Dutch firm Philips. According to a report from 1972, the year before the ferry tragedy, there were 161 factories in Kaohsiung's EPZ, 37 electronic manufacturers making televisions and radios. Many of the others were making textiles, garments. It was buzzing with activity. The zone was a great success. The 72 hectare area, 72 hectares. So I think that's roughly 72 soccer fields. It was completely filled with businesses by the end of the second year. 
So two more EPZs were soon set up, one in Nanzi in northern Kaohsiung in 1969, and another in Tanzi in Taichung, central Taiwan, in 1970. The export processing zone provided the basic infrastructure of an industrial zone and the benefits of a free trade zone, like, you know, tax and freedom from regulations, like hassles with currency and importing materials. And of course, Taiwan's cheap labor at that time was a major factor influencing companies to set up here. Yeah, very cheap, but also intelligent, hardworking, and with a decent basic educational foundation. And these foreign companies took all the workers they could get, often teenage girls, just out of junior high school or earlier. And the majority of their earnings went to parents. Often this money would be used to fund their brother's education, at least indirectly allowing them to stay in school longer, you know, enabled them and their family to uh, move up the socioeconomic ladder. So the 1973 ferry sinking was a terrible tragedy. 25 lives. And there was that striking coincidence. All 25 of those who drowned were young women, unmarried women, and of course, girls. Not surprisingly, this fact caught the public's attention. It seemed more than random chance. Uh, People were like, uh, is it a mystery? There must be some explanation, um, some meaning. Was there an element of the supernatural or is it just a coincidence? Well, I'd say coincidence, of course. Uh, Perhaps there's a mundane explanation that the girls were in the cabin, at the far end of the cabin, probably reflects the fact that they arrived earlier than the other passengers. Also, they preferred to be in the cabin than out on the deck uh, in the sun. And I have another theory based on the the, the ferry rides that I take frequently to Qijing. I've noticed Mm -hmm. that a lot of people allow the locals or the older people to stand closer to the door so they can get off uh, first. So you're like, okay. you know, being polite by going further into the boat. So Got that it. could be something mm. as well. Mm. So as well as that coincidence of all 25 dead being unmarried women or girls, another fact jumps out. Six of the 25 were under the age of 16. Under 16. So working illegally. Yeah. For regular factory work, they should be 16. I think currently in Taiwan for part-time jobs, not factory workers, it's 15. But at that time, kids between the ages of 14 and 16 could be given some light work. The youngest girl wasn't even 14, uh, just 13 years old. So these girls had obviously lied about their ages to get jobs in the Kaohsiung export processing zone. I guess it would have been a case of like uh, borrowing an older sister's ID card or mm-hmm. using a, a fake one. And of course, the companies hiring the assembly line workers, um, it's probably fair to say they weren't all that concerned about um, their, their ages. But they did kind of cover themselves by getting the applicants to sign a document saying, you know, they are the age they claimed. Manufacturing was booming at the time and companies needed labor. So it it was a common practice uh, for teenagers to work. And labor regulations were not that strict, Uh, certainly not strictly enforced. Our extremely helpful and resourceful research assistant, Eric Xu, helped us dig up an old newspaper report that said the captain of the ferry, who shall remain unnamed, was convicted and sentenced to four years in prison. We have no idea if he actually served that amount of time, and even if he did, I might argue it was a light sentence. Yes. 
the families of the dead women got some compensation from their EPZ employers. That's what we would call comfort or consolation money, uh, Chinese wei wenjin. It's not an admission of guilt. It's just an expression of condolences, but it is some money. Right, right. Uh, and there was a larger amount from the ferry company pressured by the Kaohsiung city government. And the families received 90,000 NT, a couple of thousand dollars from the ferry company for each of the lives lost in the accident. Not trivial, but not a huge amount even back then. The families decided to bury the young women together. But the public cemetery in Zhengzhou did not have enough space for a grouping of 25 graves. So they bought some private land next to the public cemetery, and all that compensation money now gone, the ferry company and the Kaohsiung city government gave some money to help with other funeral-related expenses. Those who have been here in Taiwan for a while know that uh, funerals can be quite expensive. There's quite a bit of stuff you need to do. Absolutely, yes. Keeping the women's remains together, they thought, would help preserve the memory of the tragedy which would have a positive practical purpose as well. It would give a focus on transport safety, or the lack of it. Qijin had been connected to the mainland, but had been turned into an island, right, when that extra entrance to the harbour was made. So the residents had been forced to travel by boat. And that's not a trivial matter. I mean, imagine a medical emergency, right? Would you rather Mm -hmm. be taken to hospital by road in an ambulance or get there by sampan ferry? Uh, by road. Yeah, obviously. So the deaths of these young women had some positive consequences in that regard. It gave a degree of impetus to the building of the Cross Harbor Tunnel, which opened in 1984, and a new government-run ferry service was introduced. The collective burial site, all the graves in one place, helped draw attention to the accident, and it's fair to say probably helped make those changes happen sooner. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. The 25 young women were interred in 25 individual graves in three rows. A small memorial archway was built, engraved with the title 25 Maiden Ladies' Tomb. And there, the young victims rested in peace, well, for the next 15 years at least, because the land on which the graves stood was acquired by the government for port expansion, so... The graves were relocated to a new site in 1988. The original site was on the east coast of Chiching Island, but the new site was on the west, facing the Taiwan Strait. Hmm. Eric, we should probably go back to the deaths and some specific cultural problems that surround the deaths of girls. Um, Traditionally, daughters are supposed to become part of the husband's line, and they're not, uh, according to strict tradition, supposed to be worshipped at the family ancestral altar. The deceased women appeared in the dreams of family members, and they had requests. They were making requests. Uh, I should add that sometimes this communication was with uh, Dungi, a uh, spirit medium. But anyway, the message was the deceased daughters were serving in the heavenly realm as maidservants of Guan Ying the goddess of mercy. So they're not homeless ghosts, and that's got to be a relief for the family. Yes, they're in training. So a matter of time before becoming divine enlightened beings, deities. So yeah, so the instructions from the other side, have a god statue made for each of the daughters drowned in the ferry accident, and these statues could be placed in their homes on the family altar. 
So they're getting worshipped at home, but as kind of a trainee deity rather than the spirits of unwed daughters. Exactly. Uh, in total, uh, an incredible 22 out of the 25 women took this route, deified and represented by god statues, small, um, you know, wooden god statues. I'm drawing on research here, uh, as for much of this episode, it's an academic book, Haunted Modernities by Lee Anru. This is interesting, you know, John, because um, as much as it's outside of our culture to think of it this way, right. the parents are receiving comfort from this. I mean, if this is their belief system, it's got to be comforting to think of your daughter as being a, a servant to Guayin and, you know, uh, in heaven and all of that. Yeah, it's a nice thought, yes. So with the girls' remains interned in a new home, and the majority of them worshipped as god statues in their old homes, this might seem like the end of our story, but no, it's time for a new player to enter the stage, and that would be the Kaohsiung Association for the Promotion of Women's Rights. I don't know how to read it as an acronym, but it's a K-A-P-W-R. They had a lot of concerns and complaints. Some members of this feminist group didn't like the name the 25 Maiden Ladies Tomb, uh, with its use of maidens, the focus on them being unwed. The families had chosen the term maiden ladies for their daughters because traditionally the term has positive attributes. It implies eligible wife material, beauty, kindness, cultivation. But the feminist activists thought that maiden ladies was more of a negative term and reflected mm, discrimination. Yeah, well, I think the name is much ado about little really, but... The general point about discrimination is certainly not without merit. The feminists also dislike the negative ghostly associations. Negative ghostly associations. Yeah, there were a lot of ghost stories associated with the graveyard along the lines of the ghostly woman uh, trying to latch onto passing motorists and riders at night. So you're you're going past alone on your scooter and suddenly you've got a a female ghost on your uh, on your back seat. I can see how some of this stuff would not sit right with uh, more modern thinking people or activists. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and another thing that bothered some Kaohsiung feminists and others was that the maiden's lady's tomb was used by gamblers as a place to pick winning lottery numbers. Yeah, uh, gambling is big enough now, but oh my goodness, it was huge back in the in the nineteen eighties and and nineties. And a lot of these lotteries were illegal, and just an insane number of people gambling, gambling heavily. It was a big part of the economy, a real phenomenon. Uh, which I think we could do a whole episode on it. Okay, so where there are lotteries, there's people thinking about lucky numbers, right? And very often, if you believe uh, this, you you might seek otherworldly assistance. In Taiwanese religion, getting lottery tips, it's, it's okay, uh, but which, which deity to ask, right? It's not really super cool to go ask Buddha or the goddess of mercy, Guayin, or various bureaucratic imperial gods, uh, you know, I don't know, Guanggong or the prince of that, the lord of that. But ghosts, however, being relatively neglected, are traditionally thought of as happy to be worshipped even if the worshipping is being done by a gambler wanting lottery numbers. So the spirits of the deceased, they thought, were more likely to grant your request for winning lottery numbers. Right. Okay. So, Eric, uh, let's explain. In practical terms, getting numbers from a 
god or ghost uh it doesn't entail rolling dice uh something like that or you know the divining uh woodblocks it's basically you go to here it would be the graveyard and you're having a mental conversation at the site sort of praying um waiting for the numbers to pop into your head and gamblers whose numbers proved lucky would leave offerings as expressions of gratitude or even hire one of those uh, puppet trucks for entertaining the spirits. But yeah, sometimes if the numbers were ineffective, angry gamblers might deface the graves. So in 2004, the KAPWR, or the Kaohsiung Association for the Promotion of Women's Rights, called a press conference in which they called for changes to the 25 Maiden Ladies' Tomb. And they had some very specific complaints, uh, like the ones we've mentioned, but also the wider problem of religious traditions discriminating against women. But then there's also, like, only married women could be commemorated alongside the ancestors of their husbands, but not among those of their, uh, their birth families, right? The mother mm-hmm. family. Unwed Taiwanese women, they got it the worst. They were pretty much just outcasts in the afterlife. And the feminists thought these 25 deceased should be celebrated for their role as manufacturing workers in Taiwan's economic miracle. So in 2006, the Kaohsiung city government adopted KAPWR's recommendation to change the maiden lady's tomb to the Memorial Park for Women Laborers. And the women were to be recast, you could say, as young female heroines who fought for Taiwan's economic development. Supernatural associations were to be removed and modern tourism was to be emphasized. The individual graves were to be removed, the bones collected from the graves and put in urns and placed in a chamber under uh, a statue, a lotus flower statue uh, on a pedestal. So lotus, it's a Buddhist symbol, of course. The memorial arch was removed. The ghost money burner was removed. The area where the graves had stood and the surrounding area would be changed into a park. So even though digging up and moving remains is much more common here than in the West, it's still not something casually done. As you might imagine, many of the families were unhappy about the government digging up their daughters. Yeah, digging them up again. They'd already been dug up for that uh, relocation in 1988 for, you know, the expansion of the, the Kaohsiung Harbour. The authorities, however, managed to convince the, the parents and the families that the renovated site would be much nicer, cleaner, better lighting. And as a park, it would be maintained and protected. Kids could visit, people walking their dogs. It would no longer be a dark, gloomy place where gamblers went and perhaps even drug addicts hid out, you know. So there was many pluses, the government said. Yeah, and it's part of a major wider trend of cemetery uh, renovation and removal. Thousands of tombs uh, at the time. So yeah, this 25 Graves project was was not that big a deal. So anyway, the families agreed uh, eventually. The Memorial Park was opened in 2008. So John... What do you think of this uh, kind of reimagining of it and, and the name, right? The Memorial Park for Women Laborers. Not a big fan. Okay, why? I don't really consider the ferry tragedy a work accident. Isn't it more a question of transport safety? That is a good point. I probably would have deferred 
to the you know tried and true uh, thing we use in Taiwan, the nine three Chijing Ferry Tragedy Memorial, you know something like yeah, that. Yeah, they Just love the, they love numbers here, so yeah, it's, it's odd yeah. not to have a numbers. <laughs> yeah. But but I'm also okay with a nod to the women and, and young girls who sacrificed so much to push Taiwan into modernity and relative economic prosperity. So I would have had like a, a side of the park note that you know that angle of it. No, I wouldn't have completely left it out. The new name is too general for my taste. Uh, you know, women laborers, too vague. I'd like a reference to the actual 25 women who died. Yeah, personal stories of individuals are almost always more effective. And in that vein, before we started recording, you you mentioned a rather moving story about one of the victims. Yes, Zhuang Yegui, uh, the oldest of them, so 30, and I think uh, the most educated. She'd graduated from senior high school. After school, she worked as a dressmaker, but was looking for uh, a better job. And she landed an accounting job at the Kaohsiung Export Processing Zone. Okay, so she's 30 years old, uh, but single. Not for much longer, however. She's engaged. The wedding day set for the next month. And September 3rd, 1973, was her very first day on her new job. Oh, God, that is just heartbreaking. Yeah, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Uh, Hmm. Worse would be the story of the family who lost three daughters. Three sisters. Yeah. Sad. Very, very sad. Uh, But one positive note that we can end on is that according to the research that I've done and I've asked others, there hasn't been a fatal serious accident in the last 50 years of people crossing. And there's a lot of crossings. I mean, those ferries- One of the busiest ports in the world. That's That's an amazing safety record since then. Yes. And the ferries are being replaced right now as they age out. The new ones coming in are electric. So no more billowing diesel smoke. So better for the environment. And much safer, you know, fire extinguishers, just everything you can imagine, a life vest. So uh, silver lining, if you could say that. Mm-hmm. My book recommendation, Haunted Modernities, Gender, Memory, and Placemaking in Post-Industrial Taiwan by Anru Lee, University of Hawaii Press, 2023. And if you go to our YouTube channel or our website, you'll see the history of the Chijing Ferry and also a video showing this particular memorial park and uh, what Chijing, that area, looks like right now. Thank you so much for listening to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye.